the topic is virtue tonight, and um, some of you come on Thursday nights and experience various lists. How many people have heard a talk on some Buddhist list before? <laughs> right. How many Buddhist lists do you know? Like lots of them, right? But sometimes they can get confusing. Even after 10, 20 years of practice, some people will be, you know, I can ask even very senior students, can you name the seven factors of enlightenment? Can you name the um, eight of this or the ten of those or the four of those or the three of those? And it's amazing how sometimes they get turned around in our minds or we forget one of the seven factors or we forget one of the steps on the eightfold path or whatever. And there are, so there are a couple of books that are very basic Buddhist books, very readable, very contemporary language that are structured based on the primary lists. I would encourage everyone to read these two books. So I brought them. You can look at them. Um, the Beginner's Guide to Insight Meditation by Irina Wiseman and Jean Smith. It's very clear with exercises at the end of every chapter. And Light on Enlightenment by Christopher Titmus, The Revolutionary Teachings on the Inner Life. And it has reflections at the end of every chapter. And um, they're nice books. So I just thought I'd give you a few resources. Um, I also just pulled this out of the library because I'm going to be referring to a number of suttas in the middle link discourses. And these aren't just things that are discourses that are only, they, they are originally an oral tradition, but there is a text. So if you become interested and you think, do I really believe that Shaila, that the Buddha said that? Don't believe me. Walk over to the library and open the book and check it out for yourself. Then you can wonder if... You can wonder if the translator translated it right or whatever, but um, we have all these resources, so it's just nice to um, know that they're there. This three-part series on the three trainings, sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue, concentration, and wisdom is one of the ways that the Noble Eightfold Path is divided up. So you may also consider this a sort of an abbreviated or um, way of putting the Eightfold Path into subcategories. So the Eightfold Path would include um, Samaditi, which is right view, and Samasankapa, right intention or right thought. Those two form the, the training called um, wisdom. Um, Right speech, right action, and right livelihood um, form the training of sila, or virtue. And right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration form the the training of samadhi, or concentration. So you'll find a lot of parallels in this um, three-part series that you would find if it was broken up into eight parts. The title of tonight's talk is Practice in Daily Life, Virtue. This practice of virtue is the way that I conceive of our daily life practice. Gandhi said, how I live my life is my teaching. There are five standard guidelines or precepts that we generally practice as lay people. And these are commitments that guide our actions. The first is restraint from killing. The second is restraint from stealing. The third is restraint from untrue or harmful speech. And the fourth is restraint from sexual misconduct. The fifth is restraint from intoxicants. 
How many people have heard this list before? Yeah, oh, good, good, good. When I lived in Thailand and was practicing in the monasteries, virtually every single discourse, every single day, began with a talk on the precepts, and we chanted them every day. It was not something we heard once and figured, oh, yeah, yeah, we all know this. It was instead a source of joy and something that we continued to practice and continued to to develop. How we conduct ourselves, how we live and act, was understood to be an absolutely indispensable element of our practice. One of the reasons that I guided this particular meditation at the beginning of the session of moving through the legs and the arms is I often find that by doing a meditation that focuses on the movements of the hands or the sensations in the hands and the feet can help to bring our mindfulness into our actions. If we're very aware of the sensations of the hands, we'll really notice when we're reaching for something or when we're moving for something or when we're moving away or toward. So many things we do with our hands can cause harm or can um, cause a, be a, a cause of benefit and um, goodness in the world. The same with our feet, what we move toward or away from. Tonight I'll be speaking primarily about the precepts, but these should not be considered a practice for beginners. In fact, as our practice matures, we may find that our appreciation of the precepts continues to increase. I found when I sat the first few um, three-month retreats that I did is one of the, sometimes at the end of the retreat we would be asked to um, say something uh, to the teacher or to a small group of, um, in a small group setting about what we had learned or what we were going to go home with or what our practice commitment was. And the first few three-month retreats, it was very clear to me that it was to make my sila more impeccable, to really clean up the, um, the quality of how I lived my life. Sometimes when we're meditating, particularly in long retreats, the slightest break of a precept can agitate the mind and prevent the depth of rest of concentration. So there are a number of levels that can inspire our practice of sila. The first is simply kindness and generosity, because keeping the precepts of not causing harm is a way simply of expressing sensitivity towards ourselves, towards others, and the world. It's a way of turning our mind away from habits of greed and of selfishness that's caused so much harm in the world. And we then turn the mind toward love and compassion and kindness. We can also consider the precepts as a way of protecting our own minds so that we nurture the inner conditions that create calmness and harmony within us rather than the conditions that create agitation, guilt, or regret. Those thoughts that arise in meditation about past actions can very often require a remedy of a change in our habits, a change in the way that we act, the way that we live. Many times, people practicing meditation will remember something that they did some years ago that was hurtful. And we can um, recognize these with some, some mindfulness so that we don't um, inflame the guilt from the past. 
but we can also learn from those errors so that we um, bring our actions into a clearer harmony with life. If we have a lot of agitation of um, thoughts of, I said this, this hurt somebody, I was nasty about this, I hurt that, I took that, it didn't belong to me, or we have any kind of sort of guilt or remorse or fear that we're going to get caught or something regarding anything, um, it will agitate the mind when we sit in quiet, when we sit in stillness. So sila, virtue, is considered an absolutely necessary component of right concentration. It creates the foundation on which the mind will settle. The third area that mindful, that um, a virtue can be practiced in is as a way of practicing mindfulness. Very much as in the still posture, the stillness and of the sitting posture creates a framework in which mindfulness develops. In activity, we can use the precepts to create a framework in which to develop mindfulness. Because if we go outside of the precepts, it says so the mind gets signaled very quickly, oh, what's going on? What's happening here? We can um, view and understand um, mindfulness in our conduct not in terms of good or bad, right or wrong. We're a good person, we're a bad person. But simply to know what leads to ease, clarity, and happiness for ourselves and others, and what leads to harm, confusion, guilt, remorse, and pain for ourselves and for our communities. In the middle-length discourse, um, in the advice to Rahula, there's a very touching um, conversation between the Buddha and his son Rahula after Rahula had ordained, where the Buddha describes the importance of repeated reflection to purify the body, the speech, and the mind. Reflection on the precepts turns our attention toward the source of our thoughts and of our actions and of our speech. What really is motivating that? What really is our intention behind the actions? So the Buddha asks his son Rahula that before he undertakes an action of body, speech, or mind, he should repeatedly reflect. And the reflection specifically consists of a few questions to ask ourselves. He says to ask, if I do this action that I wish to do, will it lead to my affliction? to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both myself and others? Or will it be for my benefit, the benefit of others, or the benefit of both myself and others? He's asking Rahula and us through this instruction to consider what are the likely consequences of our actions. Now, we cannot control the consequences of our actions. But we have a sense, I think, a sense of learning through the course of our lives what things tend to lead to happiness and harmony and what things tend to lead to harm. So we reflect on the action prior to doing it. And then we reflect again as we are doing it in the course of the action. And then we reflect again after we have completed the action. 
So we are continuously through the course of giving rise to an intention, deciding to perform an action, and then looking back at the consequences of the action. We are reflecting on the wholesome or unwholesome nature of that action, particularly by noticing what the results are. It's a very simple process, but you can see how one can really learn very quickly just by repeatedly reflecting what leads to harm and what leads to happiness. Now, the Buddha also acknowledges that there are going to be times when we blow it, when we've done the wrong thing. And he says, acknowledge that, confess it, and then correct oneself. Resolve to restrain oneself in the future. And if, when we reflect, we find that we have done right, then abide glad and happy and practice day and night cultivating wholesome states. And he doesn't say, Rahula, now just kick back, you're fine. You don't have to reflect about the precepts anymore. He says, be be glad and happy in your own virtue and practice day and night cultivating wholesome states. So we purify the mind by repeatedly reflecting. This is the way that I understand we integrate our practice in our daily life. Daily life practice is not just about mindfulness bells reminding us to take a few breaths before we rush out the door or pick up the telephone. But it's really about training day and night in wholesome states. Shanti Deva said, Whenever I wish to move or to speak, First, I shall examine my state of mind and firmly act in a suitable way. Whenever my mind becomes attached or angry, I shall not react, nor shall I speak. I shall remain mum and unmoved like a tree. The precepts can also be an expression of wisdom as well as a practice of mindfulness and reflection. Because it's not about right and wrong. It's really about seeing cause and effect. Patrul Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master, said, When the eagle soars up high above the earth, its shadow for a while is nowhere to be seen. Yet bird and shadow still are linked. So too our actions. When conditions come together, their effects are clearly seen. There's another discourse in the middle-length sayings called the Greater Discourse on the Ways of Undertaking Things, where the Buddha begins his talk by asking his assembly a question. And he asks, For the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Is that still something that most people want? Yeah, things haven't really changed so much in 2,500 or 600 years. So the Buddha goes on and he says, Yet, although beings have this wish, desire, and longing, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now, what do you think is the reason for that? 
And then the discourse goes on to answer by pointing out that people who are unskilled in Dhamma practice do not know what things should be cultivated and what things should not be cultivated, what things should be followed and what things should not be followed. And not knowing this, they cultivate the things that should not be cultivated and do not cultivate the things that should be cultivated. They follow the things that should not be followed and they do not follow the things that should be followed. Because of this, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. This happens because people are unskilled and undisciplined in the Dhamma and those who are unskilled and undisciplined do not see. Basically, the Buddha is telling us that people keep blowing it and doing the very things that bring them unhappiness rather than the fulfillment of their wishes. This occurs because we do not see the way conduct conduct bears fruit. So how should we determine what should be cultivated? In this discourse, the Buddha lays out four ways of how to know what we should do. He didn't just say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He gave us some guidelines to consider. He said, some things may be painful now and painful in the future. Should you do that? What do you say? How many people say yes? How many people say no? Okay, most of the no's. The Buddha agreed. What about if something's pleasant now, but likely to be painful in the future? Should you do it? No, mostly no's. Anybody say yes? Okay, you pretty much agree with the Buddha. He said, don't do it. What if it's painful now and pleasant in the future? Should you do it? How many say yes? And how many say no? Okay, so some on both sides. The Buddha said to do it. If it's painful now but pleasant in the future, he said do it. And the fourth way is what if it's pleasant now and pleasant in the future? How many people wouldn't want to do it? <laughs> right. Okay, so we all can agree with that one. He said to do it. It's through considering the probable results that one decides whether or not something is skillful, not by how it feels in the present. And that's very important because very often we are so concerned with the immediate sensation of pleasure and displeasure that we don't always stop to consider sometimes we need to do something that's painful now but will lead to something that has, that has a more wholesome quality. He advises us not to base our actions on how something feels now, but to always consider the long-term consequences. I mean, just imagine how our ecology would be different if this was a pervasive reflection, how our economy would be different, how our social structure would be different. Many times, how our lives would be different if we thought of the long-term instead of the short-term pleasures. The simile that he uses in this discourse is a very classic ancient simile of, of a mixture that could be poison or could be medicine. 
If somebody gives you a bowl to drink and says, this is sweet, it's honey, but it will kill you, do you drink it? No. But if it's bitter and nasty, but it will heal you, do you drink it? Yes. And of course, if it's bitter and will kill you, you definitely don't. And if it's sweet and honey and, <laughs> so, um, and is also medicine, that's all the better. But, um, but to, to again consider our actions just like we would medicine or poison. Patrul Rinpoche, the Tibetan master, elaborated these ways of undertaking things a bit further. And he emphasized that, a positive, that there is a positive action that needs to be adopted. It's not enough to happen, not to commit any wrongdoing, but there's a positive component. And that positive component is to make a commitment, to take a vow not to engage in harmful actions. That there was power in the vow, in the commitment, greater than simply not doing it, not doing harm. He also encouraged the importance of practicing positive antidotes. So instead of just refraining from killing, to protect life. Instead of simply not stealing, practice generosity to continue to cultivate the rule of discipline, to tell the truth, to reconcile disputes, to speak pleasantly, etc. Working with our conduct is a way to overcome even very subtle tendencies of ill will or harmfulness. But there will be times when we will find ourselves almost as though we're already engaged in something that we know is poison. And we have to face ourselves. We have to turn the attention to see, oh, this motivation arose within me. Not to judge ourselves as, oh, I'm such a horrible person, but simply to recognize this part of humanity arose within me too. I know it's poison and I can set it down. We have the capacity to abandon anything that arises, any thought, any motivation that arises within us, should we wish to do that. We can decide, we can make the commitment that even if unskillful motivations arise within us, we will not give in to that momentum to then act on it. But it takes integrity and it takes courage and tremendous strength to practice with the precepts. And we may have to go against the stream of, of our own tendencies as well as the tendencies of people around us. Thomas Merton said in No Man is an Island, Fear is perhaps the greatest enemy of candor. How many men fear to follow their conscience because they would rather conform to the opinion of other men than the truth they know in their souls? How can I be sincere if I am constantly changing my mind to conform with the shadow of what I think others expect of me? Others have no right to demand that I be anything other than what I ought to be in the sight of God. Reflect for a moment how you tend to um, feel, how you tend to respond to the demands and expectations of your friends or your family or your colleagues at work? 
Are you ever asked to engage in financial transactions, in, in dealings with money or investments or the use of materials that actually don't feel quite right to you? Are you asked to speak in a way that doesn't feel quite right? To lie or to distort the truth or to gossip in any way as a part of your job or your work? What about sex or drink in social environments? Does it feel like it's aligned with something that is harmonious? Or does it feel askewed and that it might lead to harm? Sometimes we need to scrutinize the details of our lives so that we make our conduct a very conscious part of our practice, not from a place of self-hatred or self-condemnation, but from understanding interconnection and a commitment to compassion towards ourselves and the protection of our own minds and towards others. I find it very helpful to break each of the precepts down into component parts so that we take them each as a very conscious aspect of our practice. There was a period of my practice for quite a few months, like a couple of years, where I decided to work with the precepts. Um, And I would break each one down into little tiny assignments that I would work with, like little projects for a week at a time or two weeks at a time. And I would keep a little notebook and I'd jot little little notes down about any time that I crossed over whatever line I had set or whether I was able to turn around or if I said something or all, all sorts of, I worked systematically through these precepts. And it was very useful because, you know, I thought I was a good person. But if you actually carry a notebook around and write down everything that is, you know, works. I mean, sometimes I'd end up home and I wouldn't realize that I had two extra pens in my purse. That, you know, sometime in the grocery store I had signed a check and I didn't intend to steal it, but I wasn't mindful of somebody else's property. And it just got in with my checkbook. There were lots of little things that I, it may not have been like, you know, like take me away to prison or anything, but it was a clear indication of a lack of mindfulness regarding property. Something as simple as pens or pencils, something um, simple in terms of speech, things that are said. And do I speak in a way only what I know or sometimes say things that I have just heard from hearsay and yet present them as though they're true or picked up on the Internet? God only knows if that's true. So... It's important, I think, to really look quite precisely um, at our actions so that we know exactly where our weak spots are and can bring our awareness to reflect upon those. I found it really helpful to watch for any quality of what I call compelling energy, that feeling of, of obsession, greed, desire, reaction. I must have it. It must be this way. I've got to do it. I've got to do it now. Those little ultimatums that we impose upon experience are very often fueled by some reaction of the past and are not a wise response in the present moment. So if you wish to undertake uh, work with the precepts, I would encourage you to be particularly attentive to this sense of imperative or fear or exasperation and simply be willing to pause whenever that compelling energy arises to stop ourselves before we get swept away, to just feel ourselves standing, feel the feet on the ground, feel our hands 
bring the awareness right into the arms and the legs so that we sense our presence in whatever activity that we're doing. We have to slow down. I found that almost every time that I was breaking a precept, I was trying, I was rushing because I wanted to get it over with. Being present in that activity did not feel good. I didn't want to reflect upon it and I wanted to get it over with quickly. Just slowing down would completely change the activity because in that slowing down, I would have to be present with it and then would have the time to change the course of that action, to actually interrupt that habitual tendency and to just ask myself, you know, I know this feels bad. Why am I doing this? This is poison. I'm drinking poison. And then make that change. There are going to be times, zillions of times, that we still blow it, that we say something and we're only mindful after we've said it. Or we do something and we're not even aware until the consequence comes. So it's also really helpful to just be willing to begin again. Not to beat ourselves up or berate ourselves, but just simply begin again. We recognize the error and we make a resolve to begin begin again. We always have options with our actions. And precept practice is not about conforming to this list of five precepts. But it's really a practice of reflection and of mindfulness and of slowing down and of exploring a whole range of options that we have in our activity. There are so many choices that we have beyond our habitual patterns. There's a beautiful sutta in the Middle Link Discourses called Effacement, where the Buddha takes the simile of there's a rough path, an uneven path, and then there's another path, an even path a smooth path by which to avoid the rough path. And then he goes on to list 44 qualities. So, and I'll just read a few of them to you. And, and the simile for all of them is there's a rough path and then there's a smooth path by which to avoid it. So too, a person given to cruelty has non-cruelty by which to avoid it. One given to taking what is not given has abstention from taking what is not given, by which to avoid it. One given to gossip has abstention from gossip, by which to avoid it. One given to ill will has non-ill will, by which to avoid it. One given to restlessness has non-restlessness, by which to avoid it. One given to arrogance has non-arrogance, by which to avoid it. And there are 44, you, can, you get the gist of it. He recognizes the human quality. He's not, he knows he's not dealing with an ideal group of disciples. There are people who, within his order, because he's teaching these people, this was a direct teaching to somebody who was sitting there. There are people who, who have a tendency toward restlessness, have a tendency towards, towards taking what's not given, have a tendency towards arrogance, have a tendency towards cruelty. And whatever our tendencies are, we have the abstention from that by me, by, as a means to avoid it. This option of abstention is incredibly powerful. I'd like to close with a quote by A. Whitney Griswold. Self-respect cannot be hunted. It cannot be purchased. It is never for sale. 
It cannot be fabricated out of public relations. It comes to us when we are alone, in quiet moments, in quiet places, when we suddenly realize that knowing the good, we have done it, knowing the beautiful, we have served it, knowing the truth, we have spoken it. So as we develop the training of wise speech and wise action and how our actions in come forth in our livelihood, how we sustain ourselves in, in our world. We can bring this quality of reflection and mindfulness to explore our conduct and bring the whole area of our conduct into our practice. Let's um, sit for a few minutes and then we'll do some reflections. Please reflect upon these five general guidelines and precepts with the idea of perhaps choosing one to work with in a particular way. I'll read through the five to remind you of each. And I'd like you to consider what might be a kind of a weak area or a place, it may not be that weak, but it may be a place of interest for you. 
And then uh, we'll give some thought to a way of working with that. But first, choose one of the precepts um, to refrain from killing or causing harm, harming life. To refrain from stealing or taking what's not been given. To refrain from untrue or harmful speech. To refrain from sexual activity that causes harm. And to refrain from the use of intoxicants that cloud the mind. Just choose one to work a bit with and think for a moment of some way that you might bring more attention to that aspect of practice. Something that you might do, like Give yourself a little project, a little homework assignment. closing, simply reflect upon all five of these. Not killing, not stealing, not using speech or sexuality or intoxicants in ways that cause harm. And see if you can take that resolute vow, as Patro Rinpoche said, that commitment, that inner interest, to, to the best of your ability, refrain from causing harm through, these, through attending to these precepts. Touch that place inside of yourself that simply wants happiness and harmony. from a couple of people what kind of little homework assignments you might be giving yourself this week just in case your ideas spark the interest for somebody else did anybody come up with some little project oh I have loads of them what what um, what um, what what precepts were you interested in working with what, Lovely. 
Lovely. Yeah. The, and the post-its, too, there are so many things like that. And the, the, where we, with the posts, you know, things that, you know, it, it feels like it's okay, but... Yeah. And, but there are a lot of things that end up being infringements, like of intellectual property and of um, things that are convenient, like at the office. Or The Buddha also talked about this precept of not taking what's not given in terms of fair business practices. And he used the example of the scales, like having the scales in the marketplace balanced, not like having them lean on one. There's lots of things that we engage in that require a level of material trust when we enter into negotiations, when we enter into contracts, when we enter into agreements. Um, it's as though, uh, are, are, are we really being fair with things, with all the material things? So you can expand it as you did through the, um, the, the, the voice of speech. So you can also expand the, the concept of the material aspects. Something else. Who is going to work with another one? Please. Something I always find interesting to try to work with is it doesn't, I don't know quite where it fits, but as one goes through life, it's so easy to leave everything disturbed rather than leave everything harmonious. So mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's so simple to drop a piece of trash somewhere mm-hmm. and so difficult sometimes even to, to pick up someone else's trash and mm-hmm. carry it away. Mm-hmm. And it's something I like to think about. Mm. It's yeah. Sort of. Well, it's, it's non-harming. It's not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it isn't exactly killing, but it's really paying attention to your interconnectedness in the community. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Something else? Please. Uh, I'm going to work on harmful speech because uh, in my work situation, it's, it's not very, the morale's pretty low, and a lot of gossip going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, and I like to hear gossip, <laughs> and it makes things interesting, but also perpetuates the, the low. Yeah. How might you um, work with that when, say, you're say you're approaching a group of colleagues around the Xerox machine or something, and there's uh, some conversation going on that you know feels unskillful, and you enter into it and you start to feel liking the gossip? Then what do you do to make a shift? Uh, I, I think for now, I just refrain from adding to the conversation. Okay. Uh, not talking at all. Great. That's. The, that abstention is very, very powerful. I would encourage you also to be aware of the gratification, of the liking of it, because often we, um, often we don't follow through with our, um, our deepest commitments and the commitments to kindness because um, of the gratification. It's, that, you know, it's, the, it's the poison that, smells like, that, that tastes like honey. Um, and so once we bring mindfulness to the gratification or the pleasure of it, then we can really assess the situation and give ourselves more options. So it's really important to, to notice that just as you did. Nice. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
No, that's just lovely because there are many times when we engage in just that mind-numbing activities. And it's worth knowing what do you do? Um, what is your mind-numbing activity? What is, what is dulling the mind? What's clouding the mind for you? And the possibility of asking yourself if you really need that. If you really need that. Well, I would encourage all of you to explore the precepts, to really take them systematically, because it's not about being good or bad. It's really not. It's really an arena for mindfulness. Um, I think it was almost two years that I worked with it with a little piece of paper in my pocket all the time, writing down and like considering it and, and everything. And if you ever want to work with any particular precept and just like wonder, what's Shyla really talking about about these assignments? That's the way I worked with myself. So I would take the first one and I would consider, I would notice some aspect where there would be a tendency towards towards um, towards harming or towards cruelty or towards and then I would I would structure something so that I had to face it I'd make some little assignments or I put myself in some situation so that I had to face that motivation until it could turn until I could have other options than what the habit was the with the with the um, the, the the taking was not given okay there were the pencils so first there was the or the the, the pens from the stores, they'd be the, the, the first, the mindfulness, but then it also was a whole reflection on the precision of, well, what about making change and um, tips and generosity and um, um, real clarity around um, all sorts of financial transactions. So, um, I would encourage you to really like consider them in um, really, really in, in, in depth, in depth. Of course, speech one could work on that for years, if not decades, and enjoy and enjoy. Yeah, tremendous power in virtue and in the joy that comes through that to really recognize it. And then, when you reflect upon it, you abide glad and happy, continuing to practice day and night. Thank you.